All right. Well, it's a privilege, as always, to come now to the very reading and the preaching of God's Word. We're going to be in John uh, 3.16 tonight. I, uh, it's a pretty famous passage, one might say. Right? <laughs> I think we've all heard of it before. But yeah, um, but as, yeah, as we're just continuing on the Gospel of John, just passage by passage, just so happens that we are in John 3.16. Um, and uh, this is inarguably, of course, the most famous verse, probably the, even the most passage, most famous passage in all of Scripture, John 3.16. See, in it, the very gospel of God's grace toward his own chosen people in Christ is articulated in such a way that those who have never heard the gospel, and even those who have believed for many years, are yet still able to stand in awe. This verse compels us in our very hearts to just stand in awe before God. Now, as a way of introduction, verse 16 through 21 as a whole, focus upon the same themes that we had discussed last week when we looked at Nicodemus approaching Jesus by night and as he was representing the Pharisees and all that opposed Christ in the darkness as the darkness came to the very light of life, Christ Jesus himself by night. And even here in verses 16 through 21, we catch glimpses of these same motifs that we saw last week. Themes such as darkness versus light, and even opposition to the gospel versus reception to the gospel. But in this passage as a whole, we see, I believe, a brilliant and colorful array of gospel truths. But in John 3.16 specifically, not just the whole passage, but just that one verse, we see the starting point of this beautiful tapestry or array of God's grace. See, right here, we see, in many ways, in verse 16, the very core of the message of the gospel. And in verses 17 through 21, we see what contains the implications of this gospel for those who are in Christ and for those who are not in Christ, those who stand condemned, as it says in our passage, versus those who are inheritors of eternal and everlasting life. So to illustrate, if John 3.16 can be likened to anything, I would actually describe it as being like a single ray of white light, a light shining forth into the darkness. And if we use that illustration, it would be appropriate, I believe, to describe the following verses in verses 17 down to 21 as being like the full spectrum of refracted light, articulating and even demonstrating in more powerful vividness the glorious truth that is just contained so simply in verse 16 itself. I love verse 16 so much because, again, it contains the seed or the essence, the core of the very gospel. And this core of the gospel, found in this one singular verse, is designed to move each one of our souls, whether we're new believers or old believers, so to speak, alike, to worship that's why it's here. It's designed to lead us to stand in awe of God. Now, for this reason, I want to do both parts of our passage justice then, both verse 16 as the seed, so to speak, but also verses 17 and following as the implications of it. And so rather than trying to cover the whole thing tonight, I've actually decided as of literally just yesterday to focus on just verse 16 tonight and then next week, we'll go ahead and cover verses 17 through 21, so we can do both justice. That said, 
our main idea then for tonight is this. As we come to the reading and preaching of God's holy word in John 3, 16, that verse specifically, the main idea is that the gospel itself is, in fact, the demonstration of God's covenantal love toward us, his own people. And so John 3, 16 in effect, answers two deeply personal, life-defining, life-altering questions for each one of us. These will be our two main points for this evening as well. First, how did God love us? And second, why? Why did God love us? So without further ado, let's go ahead and come now to the reading of God's holy word. So I'd like to invite you to turn with me, if you haven't already, to John 3. Verse 16 and following, as we read together this message of the gospel. John 3, 16 following says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But, but, whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is the reading of God's holy word. Let's go ahead and come before him in prayer. Jesus, we thank you again for this time to now approach your word and to um, just see and marvel at it once more. Pray, O oh God, that as I deliver your word to your people, that your Holy Spirit would speak through me as your messenger, that I myself would get out of the way, but rather that the message itself would be proclaimed, that Christ himself would be made known, that he would be treasured and adored in this place, so the very doors of our hearts would be just widened and opened before him, that the King of glory might enter in, and declare to us once more the wondrous mysteries of the gospel of grace. And so do that, O Lord, through us and in us by the reading and by the preaching of your holy word. And so we pray all this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. <coughs> well, friends, I can imagine that I'm not the only person who has, of course, heard John 3.16 over and over and over and over and over again my entire life. But show of hands, in fact, who all has like, heard this since you were a child? Yeah. Quite, quite a few of us. All of us, really. <laughs> See, we've seen John 3.16 on bumper stickers and signs, and we've even seen it on face paintings, like we'll probably see tonight at the big game, right, if you're going to watch the game later on. Yeah, you're probably going to see John 3.16 going on on some people's faces. But I venture to say that we've probably become so, if anything, like overly accustomed to seeing this verse, so used to this verse even, that we unintentionally write it off as if it's powerless. 
as if it doesn't really mean much more than a bumper sticker or a sign or a face tattoo at the moment. We often don't consider then how deeply personal this verse really is. See, for that reason, then I want to provide us with a more literal translation. I know it sounds funny to say that, but right from the Greek, just word by word by word, in order to help us see it more vividly and to see how really personal it is and to see it as though we're seeing it again for the first time. And so in the Greek, John 3.16 reads it this way, specifically, word by word. In this way, God loved the world so that he gave his only begotten son. Why? In order that everyone who believes would never be destroyed, but have life eternal. Do you catch the difference? It's so much more powerful than what we are kind of accustomed to. We, we might know it from the KJV or other versions and whatnot, but when you see it and when you hear it, and you, you just take every word bit by bit, you begin to realize this is the most potent verse in all of Scripture, the most powerful thing. Do you hear then how personal, though, this same pronouncement is over each one of us who believe upon this Christ, our Savior? See, whereas most of our English translations say something like this, for God so loved the world, the very first word in the actual original Greek is the word hutos. A little Greek lesson for all of you. I like to call it Greeking out with my friends. I'm going to do a little bit of that tonight as a heads up. But hutos, meaning so, or literally in this way. It has to do with the manner in which something is accomplished. Why something is being done. In this way it is done. See, that word hutos, it actually starts off the entire sentence, in this way God loved. The verse isn't just saying something to the extent of, you know, God so loved us. Like, he so loved us, like with italics and everything, right? Like, something like, you know, I so love you, or I so love Haagen-Dazs ice cream, which is true, by the way. I do <laughs> so love it. But, rather... God is not saying here in John 3, 16, I so love the world. He's saying, no, in this way, I love the world. Let me demonstrate my love. In this way, I love this world. See, it speaks to the very heart of God. What compelled him, what, what caused him to move. It speaks to what alone could possibly move the very creator of the world, the redeemer of his elect, and compel him to act upon his love. 1 John 4, verse 8, later on in the scripture, tells us this very thing. It says that God is love. It's one of the most defining attributes of God himself. And though each one of us, as we know, as we just confessed even earlier this evening, has broken the heart of this God who is love. Though each one of us have rebelled against his holiness, and each one of us have rebelled against his kindness toward us, and we've even attempted to kill him off with our own words and with our own actions, in this life, even from eternity past, before he fashioned the very world, Ephesians 1 verse 4 tells us that this same love compelled him to purposely choose us in Christ to be his own. Now, theologians call this doctrine, this teaching, election. 
I know for a lot of people that can be a you know a naughty word for some people or a, a word that can cause a lot of contention, but it literally just means to be chosen, to be chosen in Christ and in love. See, this election is God's choosing of us, not based upon anything that you or I have done or ever will do. He didn't look down at us and say, well, they'll eventually turn out to be this all right person, so I'll, yeah, I'll go ahead and choose them. Rather, he said, no, 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 I'm going to actually, as Martin Luther once said, I'm actually going to go ahead and create that which is pleasing to me. I'm not going to choose it retroactively. I'm actually going to choose to create that which I desire. He chose us in that kind of love. See, God's covenantal electing love comes from a very place of sheer, lifelong committed, marriage-like covenantal love over those whom he is pleased to show the very depths of his grace. Now, the same love that burst forth from his own heart, this same love that chose us in Christ before the world's foundation, is the same covenantal love that John 3.16 is actually describing right here. It's in this way that God covenantally vowed himself to us. He loved us. Now, unless we read this the wrong way, we have to ask ourselves then, well, does God show this kind of steadfast, loyal, covenantal love then toward the world by and large in the exact same way? I mean, that word world is there, right? The scripture is very clear that he doesn't. Again, there is a very purposeful, electing, choosing, marital kind of love that he has for his bride and for no other. The Bible doesn't teach what a lot of people call universalism, like that church just a few blocks down from here. That everybody is chosen, it's all good, just do whatever you want, you're good, God's got it. That's actually heresy. (laughs) That's the idea that God purchased redemption, in other words, for everyone equally, And in effect, that Jesus just only died in order to potentially save people, maybe. That's not what the Bible teaches, though. See, rather, Jesus specifically died upon the cross, as we know from Scripture, like Galatians and Romans and so many places, for our sins. He knew exactly what he was doing, the exact sins that he was paying for, the exact people that he was purchasing for himself. And he purposefully and particularly died for each one of us, who trust, who believe upon him. And he purposefully bought us. We, the people whom he foreknew and chose in love before the world's foundation by name and in love. Now there's good news in this. Because it begs the question, well, how do I know that I've been chosen, right? How do I know? Well, here's your answer. If, if you have known the love of Christ over you, if you believe the gospel, if you've repented of your sins and you've been so led to a place of real faith in him, a real love for Jesus, if you've turned away from your sins, you can, and in fact you should, rest assured in the very fact that you do, in fact, belong to this God who loved you and gave himself for you. But see, just as a husband shows his love only solely, particularly to his wife and no one else in that same way, while still remaining loving or friendly in a more general way toward other people, Christ's love is the same. His saving love is specific to his bride, to his sheep, to his people, as we see all throughout Scripture. 
So you see this expression of covenantal, particular, redeeming love from his own heart stemming from that toward his own in places like John 10, verse 11, where he says, I am the good shepherd. I, uh, the good shepherd lays down his life for the world? No. For the goats? No. For the sheep? <laughs> no one else. See, also we see in Scripture that Jesus died for his bride. The one that he pursued, the one that he's marrying at the last of the wedding supper, yet to come. He died for his people, for the lost sheep of Israel, for the chosen ones of God. See, the nature of Christ's atonement, then, is that uh, it's specific in both of its scope and its effect. It's purposeful, but it's also personal. And it's also efficacious. When Christ died upon the cross, he actually accomplished something, in other words. He didn't just die to possibly save people, he actually saved you and me in that very moment by dying for us. Redeeming us by name. Actually taking upon himself, even our own sins, and once for all time accomplishing so great a salvation. And so the grand narrative of Scripture as a whole, in fact, is that of Christ as the lover and the wooer of his bride, going after her on a rescue mission in order to save her and clean her up and deliver her to the very uttermost. And in this way, for this very purpose, hutos, if you will, <laughs> the Father loved us. See, he gave his only begotten Son to save people from the cosmos, the world, from every tribe, nation, tongue, language, ethnicity. At the last, when we're all gathered together in glory, we'll see that beautiful tapestry of the bride for whom he died. My friends, while it is not ours to know exactly who it is that is in this particular number, on this side of glory, we don't know exactly who truly believes in Christ or not or who will one day but doesn't currently, that's not, for ours, that's not for us to know, as even we touched upon last week. But rather, it is our greatest joy to nevertheless spread the fame of Christ, who indeed, indeed is king and ruler over all, and so evangelize the entire world with the assurance that every single man, woman, and child who belongs to him will be brought into the sheepfold at just the right time. And so when we evangelize, we don't go after it being picky. Okay, I'm not going to talk to them. I don't like that person. I've already been hurt by them. I'm not going to go back over there. We go forth regardless. We evangelize regardless. Because we don't know exactly who belongs to him. Rather, it is to God's glory that he invites us to share the gospel with the entirety of all creation. And the hopes that God will use us to seek and save the lost. See, you and I, as those who have responded to the gospel in faith, are now those who have the privilege of boldly declaring the very mysteries of the gospel. That the Father loved us in such a way so as to send his only Son, the Son who was eternally at the Father's side, the only begotten Son, as the old English says, begotten of him before the world's creation Begotten, not made, as the Apostles' Creed says. Forever in perfect union with the Father, by his side, loved by him, the very apple of his eye. 
That is the Son whom the Father for you gave. For our sake, the Father was so moved by his love for us, people that he made for his own possession, that he sent his only begotten Son to redeem us from the very darkness of sin and wickedness and eternal condemnation that we ourselves deserved in order to fully atone for our sins by the shedding of his own blood. So why then did God love us? That brings us to our second and final point for the evening. Why then did God love us? In other words, for what eternal purpose did God choose to ever love us and demonstrate his love for us? Why would he ever even go after us, people who had spat in his face, people who had ridiculed him, people who had denied him with our own words and with our own actions? Why us? Friends, it was all in order to demonstrate his love for his own eternal glory and our eternal good. Isn't that beautiful? See, again, the gospel message in John 3.16 tells us this, kind of right from the Greek, if you will. In this way, God loved the world so that he gave his only begotten son. But here's the why question. Why, why, why did he do this? It was in order that everyone who believes in him, everyone, would never be destroyed, but have life eternal. Now, for the past couple of weeks, <laughs> I've been a little stressed to say the least. I'm feeling it right now, even right even in the moment. You know, just been so focused, sadly, and I don't want to be, but I have to, upon this idea of raising funds for our church. Otherwise, we can't exist. We can't make it, apart from, you know, kind of building the literal house, so to speak, around us. So I've been focused on traveling and going all over North Carolina and Alabama even a few weeks ago and all over and had the joy of talking with friends from not just Virginia and North Carolina, but also Pennsylvania and California and Alabama and all over the place, really, Jersey, et cetera. The list goes on and on just in the last three or four weeks alone. It's been stressful and time-consuming to say the very least. <laughs> but it's been amazing because I've been so reminded of what God's been doing here in our midst even as a church plant. Even though I know we're missing a few people tonight, I always feel sad to miss a few people, and then they're back again the next week, and then we miss a few other people. It's got this little you know, back and forth going on. It looks different every single week. You know, Every week's a little different with who all is here and who's not. But it's, been, it's been so beautiful, though, just to tell, as we call it here, the triumphs of God's grace to those who are hearing our story of what the Lord is doing in each one of us by name. And I talk about you guys quite often, to the very least, by name. And with your permission, as I've been given it before. <laughs> but people are so ecstatic just to hear what God is doing. I mean, when you think about it, we have a few people even here, even those who couldn't be here tonight, who are new or even newer believers. It's so beautiful to see how God has just been pulling us together by his own love and proving this gospel message to us even in our own midst. And so people from around the nation, as they've heard about this, even the 230 people that I emailed just a couple days ago, have already been responding, saying just, wow, like, I'm praying for you. This is a lot. I'm sure there's lots of spiritual warfare, which, which there is, <laughs> but, but it's so worth it. It's so worth it. 
in fact, several folks that I've emailed and that I've met with in person even have even just said that they've been moved by the very love of God. And they even have been moved so much so as to even give even to our cause from the outside looking in, just saying, hey, I want to support this. Here you go. People anonymously just giving people by name, not looking for any glory, but just rather wanting to support us in this work of evangelizing downtown. Uh, for instance, one of my good buddies, uh, he was going to remain anonymous. I don't think he would want us to share his name, even if I did ask him. He was so moved just even a few weeks ago when I first told him about what the Lord is doing, and what he's been doing the last few months especially. But just a few days ago, he ended up giving a very, very sizable donation, to say the very least, to our own church plan. It's the kind of thing that should move you properly to tears when you see what my friend did. Because again, he believes in what God is doing here. But though that dollar amount that he gave to me and to us as a church by name, to downtown Presbyterian, though it didn't belong to us, though it wasn't ours, it didn't come out of our own pockets, though we didn't do anything to really earn it or deserve it, it really came truly from a place of love and even sacrifice from my own friend as he gave joyfully and with absolute delight to God's cause, to his kingdom. And so what had belonged to my friend is now applied literally to our own bank account. <laughs> Friends, this is the very nature of grace. The very thing that we cannot afford has been given to us. See, grace meets our lack, our nothingness, our, our void with sustenance and with purpose and with meaning. What we can never afford or achieve on our own is by grace attributed to us, to apply to our account. See, when grace is poured out over us, it becomes our own possession. It becomes our own like my friend who lovingly gave to our church plant, the gospel message itself declares to us that God has credited the very account of our own lives, every single one of his own people who believe upon Christ for salvation. He's given them the very grace and righteousness of his beloved son. That grace and righteousness belong to them credited to their account. And so this grace, this righteousness, this holiness, this identification with God only and solely because of the gift of his son can never be revoked or refunded. What God accomplishes, in other words, cannot ever be undone. If he has saved you, you can't unsave yourself. His grace, for us who believe, has been entrusted to us. It's been attributed to us. He, Jesus, belongs to us, and we belong to Jesus for all eternity. Nothing but can take you out of his loving hands and his loving grip of love. And so we belong to him for all eternity. 
That's what John tells us later on. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation or atoning sacrifice, as the NIV puts it, for our sins. And so in application, we are no longer then to be identified as our sin, as the world tells us we ought to be identified. See, we are no longer identified by our sin or even our shame or even our guilt. Yes, we certainly were once those who walked in darkness. We were once those who were defined by our past sins. Liars, cheaters, coveters, whatever, you name it. And we still, even as believers, of course, still wrestle against the temptations to sin against our God who loves us. But please catch this. Our identity, who we are, is in Christ. It is no longer in any single one of those sins. It is not in that sin. Rather, it is in Christ and in Christ alone for all eternity. So this is why John 3.16 says that everyone who believes in Christ will never perish. This belief in Christ then is not just some sort of intellectual assent or just an acknowledgement that Christ is God. A lot of people say that. They really don't believe it. Rather, real belief is an ardent trust, a loyal devotion, a humble, even childlike faith in the shepherd king, the one who loved us and who gave himself for us. And the direct result is that everyone who trusts in the Son, every single person, will never perish. And so, friends, we can rest assured in this. Because the not or never here in John 3.16, never perish, not perish, is a little known fact here. The strongest word in the original Greek for the word no. Like it never can be. This cannot ever happen. When God says you'll never perish if you're in Christ, he meant it. Like you cannot undo this. The word that the ESV translates as perish though is even stronger than just that idea of just perishing or just kind of fading away. Rather, that literal word in the Greek is the word where we get the same word apollyon or destroyer later on in Revelation, apolytai. Those who are in Christ, in other words, will never be destroyed. Destroyed by what? Destroyed by our sin for all eternity. See, most accurately, John 3.16 is essentially shouting over each one of us who are in Christ, if you are in him, you can never and you will never be destroyed by your sin. There's a powerful word of application here. See, your sins, though they may tempt you day and night, though they may even haunt you, they never will triumph over you. The guilt that you feel over past sins has been paid in full. The shame that you have carried that makes you want to just curl up and hide from God has no power over you if you are in Christ. The hurt and the pains that you have endured and suffered even for the very kingdom of Christ are designated truly for final and full healing at the last. 
For the Lamb of God who was slain is the same Lamb who has triumphed once for all time over Satan, sin, and death. At the last, will throw away death and Satan with the fire. Never to haunt you again. See, at the last, Isaiah 25 tells us that God, our God, shall swallow up this death. And he shall wipe away the tears from our very faces. And Psalm 16 tells us that if you were in Christ, even your own body will never see final, lasting, full corruption, even though here, on this side of glory, it will in the grave. Rather, it will be raised to life eternal at the coming of Christ in power and glory. He will raise even our bodies from the ashes and the dust for the last. So friend, do you know this love of the Father over you? Where sin has maybe destroyed so much of the goodness in your own life, have you seen the redeeming and the healing power of God if you belong to Christ? Where innocency has been trampled upon you, Have you felt God shower you with his daily mercies and begin to renew you? Where joy has been just vacuumed away, have you known the peace that the Spirit himself restores as he speaks new life back into your hearts by faith? And where intimacy and love have been betrayed, have you experienced the undying, never-changing, electing love of God that compelled him to give you, his only begotten Son. If so, my encouragement for us this week is simply this. That we who believe upon Christ are not purposed for destruction. We're not. But rather we are purposed, destined for life eternal. And that life eternal started the very moment the Holy Spirit applied the work of Christ to you and opened your eyes and caused you to cry out to him with absolute faith and repentance before him. See, in every place of our lives that sin has undone us, Christ is able and willing and in fact will restore us. For life that is eternal is only found in him. In closing, if we know, if we're resting in this love of the Father over us, how can we not then declare such saving grace, such loyal love, and such a praiseworthy gift from above, not just amongst our own selves here as we meet here on Sunday nights, but how can we not share it with those who are also made in the very image of God, our neighbors, our friends, those who don't yet even know him? How can we not share this gospel with them? See, if the gospel is the very demonstration of God's love toward us, his own people, then our own proclamation of this gospel must include, then, the demonstration of God's love as we also proclaim the very gospel by word and deed alike here in downtown Lynchburg. But this all starts as we rest, and we learn to rest more deeply upon this undeserved but forever purposeful and praiseworthy love of God. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray.
Jesus, we thank you that you truly are for good and faithful. And as we have heard of your love this evening, we ask, oh God, that you would shower our hearts yet again to know um, the tender mercies that you afford us every day. We ask, oh God, that you would use this time to remind us of our identity in Christ, that we can't be snatched away, that we truly are these beloved children of you, our God, forever and forever kept by you. And so we pray all this in the powerful and majestic name of King Jesus. Amen.